Welcome to the Nemeth Report podcast. I'm Dr. Tammy Nemeth, historian, energy security and geopolitical consultant, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Dennis McConaughey about his forthcoming book, Carbon Change, Canada on the Brink of Decarbonization. Dennis has had an extensive career in the petroleum industry as an engineer and executive with TransCanada Pipelines, now TC Energy. He's been directly involved in several energy projects, such as the Keystone XL Pipeline, Coastal Gas Link, Energy East, and others. He's the author of two other books in the past five years, Dysfunction, Canada After Keystone XL, and his second book, Breakdown, The Pipeline Debate and the Threat to Canada's Future. There are links to the books in the description. Thank you, Dennis, so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure for me to be with you. Thank you. You know, you have such an interesting and thoughtful perspective on these issues. And I was curious to understand what motivated you to put pen to paper once again and write this book. Well, I didn't expect uh, that I would need to write a third book, but the evolution of how the world seemed to be headed uh, as it was moving towards the Glasgow Climate Conference really compelled me to uh, try to make some points related to how <laughs> divorced the entire UN process had become from uh, having asking a very basic question as to whether this energy transition was uh, affordable and that the method of resorting to decarbonization was proportionate to the risk of climate change that actually is most likely to pertain. And that was especially the case for a, can a country like Canada that was uh, given an, an enormous hydrocarbon endowment and yet has you know, decided to embrace decarbonization uh, and without really, in my judgment, being honest as to what the cost of this to this country is going to be. And so the book was written not to say that the world doesn't need climate policy. It, it needs better climate policy than what the UN process has given it. And so uh, that was the original motivation. Now, events unfolded during the course of writing it, most notably uh, the change in energy prices, hydrocarbon prices through the, the, through the, uh, the last winter, and then culminating in the advent of the Ukrainian-Russian uh, war that, of course, restored the whole notion of energy security as another consideration that would have to be given real accounting for, uh, as opposed to simply a, a, a relatively unthinking commitment to decarbonization. So th those were the uh, original motivations, uh, partially national, but partially a reaction to, to how the world uh, and the leadership, the political leadership and various other elites in the world had embraced a concept without basically, to my judgment at least, uh, recognizing that the world might not be able to afford it, and it might not even be justified in any event. Hmm. Those are some really interesting points, and and um, I could see why you would feel compelled to to try to suss them out and 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 tease out some of the the main things and how we can move forward from this. And I think one of the maybe where we ought to start is in some definitions because sure. you know decarbonization is the subtitle of your work, and I think a lot of people don't understand what exactly that means, because we have certain terms being bandied about in the Canadian uh, policy sphere. We talk mm -hmm. about net zero. Um, now decarbonization is sort of coming around. We talk about energy transition. But, you know, do the, does the general public have an, an idea of what that all means and what the implications are? And so if we can maybe begin. Could you define for us in the first place, decarbonization. Well, decarbonization means stop using fossil fuels, full stop. It's that simple. Uh, now, the term that is more often used, and it is still dominates 
uh, you know, the, the political discussion in Canada is net zero. Right. Now, net zero implies that you can keep using hydrocarbons as long as there's no emissions attached to them, which, which fundamentally means that you have to capture those emissions and uh, sequester them in some fashion. And of course, one of the and, and the, these this basic definitional point uh, I, I try to address right at the outset of the book, uh, CCS technology is very expensive. It has been only applied in very special circumstances. Uh, the notion that uh, it is some uh, panacea for the continued use of hydrocarbons is, um, you know, to my judgment, uh, fanciful. And so if you take a view that the practical, affordable application of carbon capture and sequestration is actually remote, uh, then you have to ask yourself, well, if I can't use hydrocarbons, are the substitutes that I'm going to use in lieu of them, uh, what do they cost and, and what uh, um, are the implications uh, of achieving uh, clean energy or let's just say non-emissive energy? So, you know, it is one thing to seriously uh, look at the relative merits of greater reliance on nuclear for baseload electricity as a way of ensuring that we displace coal. Uh, we then, you know, have to make trade-offs between, you know, how do we balance systems if we're going to eliminate natural gas from electricity generation? How are we going to make petrochemicals uh, if we eliminate the use of fossil fuels to make the basic uh, building blocks of, of and, and we're not just talking about plastic bags, but we're talking about the pervasive material applications of plastics that, that have materially improved human beings' lives to actually, you know, practical, affordable uh, forms of jet fuel. Because, you know, basic mobility is part of how the modern economy works. Or even to actually drive cars in all kinds of applications. Uh the substitution of electric cars, fully electric cars for uh, the internal combustion engine, you know, still implies a trade-off, especially in terms of the massive implications of how you're going to uh, create the additional electricity production and where you're going to get it from. My basic point is decarbonization is not using fossil fuels. And that is, in fact, uh, the most intellectually honest way to frame this, not net zero, because net zero implies that you have easy substitutions or you can sequester it or uh, because those are the only two ways of actually doing without doing without hydrocarbons. So I just sort of skip over the term net zero and try to ask people to be honest with themselves and focus on the term decarbonization, because that's what you're actually contemplating when we're going to live in a world where we can't use uh, hydrocarbons. It seems like this is almost like a bait and switch scenario. So the government has been touting the net zero narrative for a long time. But as you point out, the reality is actually decarbonization. And I feel like, you know, they've put together all of these different policy initiatives, the nine different bills and so on. Um, and then at the last second, once they have all this in place, they'll be like, oh, well, I guess, you know, net zero doesn't really work. It's actually decarbonization. And, and by that point, people, it's too late. It's too late to, to stop it. So, you know, one of the, the things I found um, interesting about your book is where you talked about the need for a conversation and that there's been a sort of shutting off of discussion about things like adaptation, about what decarbonization actually means, the cost benefit analyses and so on. So do you believe it's possible to have a national conversation about net zero and decarbonization, what it means, what it costs in, in a way that it will reach the broader public, because, you know, the, the last election supposedly was fought to some extent on Trudeau's climate change policies. He did declare this was going to be the most important election ever in the history of Canada. I think this is why. 
And yet there was so little actual discussion of what all this means. Do you think it's possible we could do that? Is it too late? Uh, I do not believe it is too late. Um, and, and Tammy, let me just take it one notch up. It's really been the UN process that has, um, and, and, you know, this is the translation between uh, the IPC technical reports and then the marching orders that come out of the panel and get sanctified at these various UN meetings, where various developed countries take upon themselves uh, commitments to reduce their carbon emissions. That, that has been Canadian carbon policy. And we, in fact, we, we know that uh, that is the path towards to getting to z net zero or decarbonization by some mid-century point in time. That process has never tried to address the question on the basis of, well, what's the actual cost benefit of trying to eliminate the risk of climate change, of which climate change you know, is a risk to be dealt with. Now, I think it's no surprise that the classic answer to deal with this is to price it. But to price it requires a fairly complicated calculation of what are the net benefits and costs of those carbon emissions. Over time, applying reasonable discount rates. But the real rub is Everybody's got to apply the same carbon price, which means the develop at, at a minimum, the developed economies of the world would have to apply the same carbon price. And, you know, a, a carbon price that would sort of reflect those net costs and benefits. Now, that number, you know, might be on the order of a hundred to two hundred dollars a ton. Uh, and if, in fact, all the developed economies, including China and India, were to apply that number on all of their emissions, then I think you'd have the beginnings of a rational international order on how to deal with this risk, because we'd all be in it more or less the same without all the other moralizings around uh, uh, what was the attached history to the accumulated carbon in, in, in the atmosphere without the, the exemptions, which, of course, create, you know, the political um, uh, resentment that some economies don't have to actually uh, meet hard targets in the same way, inflict the same pain on themselves. Right. So to me, we need leadership in Canada and frankly, in the United States, even more importantly, that would say, uh, we need to understand that the climate risk is not infinite. <laughs> there's a scenario, there's a probability that it might be, but the expected value of this risk is not infinite. We need to try to construct a response to it that is uniform across developed economies. And in doing so, we can actually make this transition more consistent with the actual risk. So this is like asking the world to reinvent this current process. Now, let me be specific about Canada. So, you know, Canada could be a champion of this logic. Presently, Canada is committed to a carbon tax by the end of the decade of $170 a ton, metric tons. That's a pretty serious carbon tax. I don't know any other country at the moment that is committed to a number that high or that transparently, transparently that high. We know one does not exist in the United States. And even the EU trading system has made no pledge to get to a number that high. They've all indulged, again, with the notions of various forms of policy interventions, whether that's mandating biofuels, uh, eliminating uh, natural gas furnaces, or as the Americans have just done under the Biden administration, uh, spending literally trillions of dollars towards advancing certain low emissive technologies. Where the conversation needs to happen is to say that Canada, uh, if it were to simply try, as I'm sure our current environment minister, frankly, even Justin Trudeau and probably Chris Freeland, are all committed come hell or high water to try to have Canada meet these emission reduction targets. 
regardless of the economic consequences within Canada. Instead of actually stepping back and recognizing that if Canada chooses not to produce hydrocarbons or contract the hydrocarbons it presently uh, produces today, other countries will do so because we live in a world that can't actually do without hydrocarbons. So we have this great uh, dilemma between the ambitions of constraining hydrocarbons for the sake of uh, mitigating the climate risk in a world that can't actually do without them. And th this, to me, should cause a country like Canada that has cost itself literally trillions of dollars over the last 10 years um, through all the frustrated uh, projects, whether in the form of LNG or expanded oil sands production, this country has lost an enormous amount of value. And uh, the world, <laughs> world consumption of crude oil is basically back to where it was in pre-pandemic levels. Yeah. The political question that you ask seems to me that we have to look to our political process to have an alternative to um, what has been at this point still would be uh, a, and this is regardless of the geopolitics of the world, seemingly, we are going to, as Canada, march towards these emission reductions regardless of what it costs us. So, so Tammy, let me just make this last point before I turn it back to you. The reason I have some optimism is because the cost to human beings of trying to meet these targets will eventually uh, create a political reaction. And you, we've seen this in places where the cost of energy becomes untenable, people react. And this is where uh, I think, and when energy becomes unreliable, uh, which is another form of it costing too much. So my own view is that over time, as this people try to implement these constraints, the cost implications do impact the general electorate, and there is a political reaction to it. But, you know, my hope is that this is the conversation this country actually has now made ever more urgent because of the geopolitics. Excellent point. Um, let me see how I can <laughs> talk about this one aspect. It, in terms of what's going on in Europe right now, um, the how they determine their electricity prices is crazy. And um, I don't want to talk too much about that, but you make a very compelling point comparing the COVID lockdowns to what life would need to be like under a decarbonized world. And there's this sort of incrementalism taking place right now in Europe where they're trying to get people used to the idea of changing behavior to use less energy. And I think one of the things about COVID was that people understood this would, for the most part, be temporary. They were willing to accept certain limits on their liberties and activities and way of life under the understanding this is temporary until, you know, we're, we're out of that, that sort of um, pandemic mindset. And in the 1970s, with the original energy crisis, people in Europe did do a lot of, you know, controlling um, how they heated their homes and so on, because they believed it was temporary. But the EU is sort of throwing trial balloons out there that this is not temporary, that this is something that's going to be ongoing for several years, which sort of leads into the point you were making in this comparison between the COVID lockdowns and decarbonization. And we're kind of seeing that taking place in Europe right now, where they're telling people um, to, to be the sort of moral flag waivers for not taking hot showers. And, you know, you could post that on Instagram, how you're, you're not taking a hot shower. Like, I just think that's crazy. But um, this is the the angle they're going, behavior modification, getting people used to the idea that when they turn that light switch on, you might not get energy. The UK is talking about three hours a day of, of blackouts, which, I mean, this is supposed to be a developed country. And they're warning people that for three hours a day, there might not be electricity when you turn your switch on. 
correct. And they too are saying, well, this isn't necessarily a temporary thing if we're committed to the energy transition. So I thought maybe by mentioning that, it can be a little bit of a segue into the discussion you made, um, comparing the COVID lockdowns to what the lifestyle or our, our standard of living would be like under a decarbonized world. Yeah. So uh, the when people thought they were facing a real existential threat of really not knowing in the early days of COVID, like just what people were actually dealing with. Uh, and how big the risk was and what had to be done to uh, reduce that risk. People were across the developed world, you know, basically were prepared to, to lock themselves up. And, you know, very fortunately, a lot of the economy still was able to function online or in the outdoors. Uh, and rel relatively miraculously, and I say this without trying to get into a, a, a detailed debate about the efficacies of vaccines, but the advent of vaccines in the developed world basically allowed the world to come out of COVID, as well as, our, along with vaccines, a rising uh, natural immunity was being built up, which you know has basically now allowed the developed world to live with COVID. But what we basically had at the core of that was a technical solution that allowed people to kind of have a, to, to avoid more Darwinist uh, confrontations with the virus, I would say, uh, and, to, and, and gave people time to learn what they were dealing with. The point is, the cost of the vaccines relative to the other impacts on the economy were, you know, that was a great technical solution, and it was embraced. The distinction with climate is... To, to actually reduce climate emissions means higher costs. And so when you talk about, you know, parts of the United Kingdom being without electricity, I mean, th this is what happens when you basically have energy systems that, you know, have been predicated on a reliance on, you know, energy forms that are either unreliable or the backstops become too expensive because you have chosen to uh, issue your own domestic hydrocarbon potential, particularly in the form of natural gas, that, that would have enabled, uh, you know, greater supply. And you can see the same story, you know, really across much of uh, the EU where, you know, the idea that you're going to shut down nuclear, the idea that you're going to issue fracking, all of this well, while at the same time you're doing this, you know, reliance on natural gas from a geopolitically dangerous entity, you know, just made the system incredibly unstable. At the core of this is being honest with people, which is to say, uh, if we're going to, like, reduce emissions, it's going to cost more. Be honest about it. Now, the cost, the question to me is, yes, I accept a carbon tax that will make it cost more, but not without some limits, not without some constraint on how high that price has to be so that it's more in sync with the actual risk of climate change if we're going to have to suck it up and actually absorb that extra cost, but not treat it as though that uh, the cost of climate change is set at infinity. So what we saw in COVID is when people were basically forced to contract their activities, we saw the first reduction in emissions in 2020. The first discontinuity in those lines of rising global emissions. Most of those were restored in the following year. And today the issue, uh, you know, is how are, how is, you know, large parts of the world going to get through this winter uh, without how much resort to actual rationing to get through this winter, given that governments are going to do everything they can to, you know, subsidize the actual cost of this winter. Uh, and even that just, you know, will embellish other macroeconomic effects that, you know, I don't need to tell anyone living in the UK what, what form that's taking. Mm -hmm. the, the, the point is to do this transition <laughs> implies higher costs, but it, imply, it, it re will require enormous intervention in the way people are allowed to live. And in, in my judgment is that markets 
once you've actually priced the risk of climate change into the economic decisions people are making, people will make sensible decisions and the transition will actually unfold in a more orderly way. So, I mean, that to me is at the core of this debate. Uh, I don't believe that a world in which energy prices are uh, rising to the levels that they've gotten to is politically sustainable, especially when there are alternatives available. And those alternatives, uh, you know, require a different point of view on the place that hydrocarbons are going to have in the energy mix. So what you can't have is men like Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau being committed to the elimination of fossil fuels. I mean, you're going to have to live with some element of climate risk that is, um, uh, you know, there. You're going to have to adapt to the climate risk, probably at a lower cost than trying to eliminate the risk, because the elimination of the risk means inevitably higher costs, lower living standards for this generation of people, especially in the developed world who have to, to bear that risk. Now, you know, the question about carbon pricing and the challenge is how do you get the G7 to start and maybe even the G20 after that to, to agree on a uniform carbon pricing system? Uh, my book basically says the world would be better off trying to make that happen than the current UN process uh, where <laughs> you basically have a set of targets that are going to be in my judgment, extremely difficult to achieve because there will be a political reaction that will undo those commitments before you ever get there. With respect to your idea of a global carbon tax, and just to, to go back for one moment, you sounded off a lot like Bjorn Lomberg there with respect to adaptation and uh, doing a cost-benefit analysis and, and adapting to the risk rather than trying to eliminate the risk. But with your your idea of a global carbon tax. So who would collect it? And then what do you do with that money? I, because I've heard the argument that, you know, so you have a global carbon tax, then what? What what do you do with that money? Is it then reinvested into adaptation and whatnot? And who gets that money? Well, I mean, a lot of people over time have thought about this question. At whatever level you apply a carbon tax, uh, and I have always thought that the the answer to this question is that the the tax should be um, deployed in really three buckets. The first is there are some elements of society that cannot afford any extra cost, so there is an argument for rebating part of the carbon tax to those least able to pay for it, to afford the increase that a carbon tax inevitably creates, because that's the whole point of it. Like it, costs have to be higher because you, you've, you've been getting something for free and you got to pay for it. In this case, accounting for the carbon risk. But there's some people in our societies that can't afford it. And so there's some amount of it that has to be reserved for offsetting the regressive elements. Number two, Another big part of it should be deployed for investments in adaptation, whether that takes the form of, you know, more dikes in low lying area, more civil engineering uh, changes in highways and others to deal with flooding, whether that ad adaptation takes the form of um, subsidizing air conditioning, whatever the form of adaptation, I think a part of it needs to be applied there. And thirdly, and as much as possible, it should go to offset other taxes that are paid in the system. I mean, the, the sort of um, right-wing ideologue in me would have it all go to simply offset other existing taxes. I don't think that's actually realistic in, these, in, 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 in the world that we actually politically live in. To make this palatable, there'll have to be some addressing of regressive impacts, some investment in adaptation. And that adaptation also has to have a component to some other parts of the world who may bear this risk of climate change more disproportionately with little resources to pay for it, which has been a recurring theme of the UN process. So, you know, to me, 
we would be better served trying to agree on how we're going to set the tax, agree on how we're going to use the dollars. But each country would collect it for themselves. And in my own view, the international aspect of it would be how much would the some portion of that tax would have to be uh, diverted to dealing with those countries that are most impacted internationally with the least resources to deal with those impacts themselves. Apart from that, every country would like make this decision between dealing with regressive impacts versus simply offsetting existing taxes. But the key point is all the countries of the world that are, we'll just say, just developed economies would be internalizing the same price. So this would mean, and, and, and you know, Timmy, let me just make this one point because I use this phrase in the book and I want to just make it here. You know, there was this great phrase by Winston Churchill once, one of many, where he said, you know, we can't let the ideal stand in the way of progress. That I think was, you know, is usually really good advice. As I've come to think about climate change, I've come to the view that sometimes the ideal is the only answer. That is to say that unless we have this uniform carbon tax constrained by, you know, a real assessment of what the actual cost benefit risk of the uh, uh, of climate change truly is, we will never deal with this rationally. We will have, you know, all this polarization from having uh, those who want to impose the interventions necessary to get to decarbonization and the and the political reactions against it. We have to, I think, as a developed world, invest in the effort to really reinvent the UN process around these concepts, um, because I think it's the, the the ideal in this case is the only thing that's going to work. And I dare use the word is going to work in any, any kind of sustainable fashion. <laughs> you mentioned the UN process. And so I'd like to just go back a little bit because you talk about I, I like the way you've or, organized your book where you establish the context the climate and energy context, how these things are negotiated and whatnot. And I'm wondering if you can just take a moment to walk us through a little bit of the, the problems with the current UN process with the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Well, you know, the basic translation of the description of the climate risk, which is, you know, the principal uh, analysis of the first working group of all these various assessment reports, has always translated into the allocation of emission reduction targets that would be assumed by the developed world, all to the point of getting emissions down to some point where the accumulated emissions in the air, consistent with all the climate models, we always have to remember that, which are themselves imperfect, would uh, allow people to feel that they were on a track towards some stabilization of temperature increase to some agreed to limit. It used to be two degrees C above essentially um, uh, pre-industrial levels. Now it's down to 1.5. Yeah. So the we all know that when you set 1.5 as the target, you're basically only going to be able to achieve this de, this stabilization uh, or realize that target by by decarbonizing because you, at some point you've got to stop because you've already put too much in the air, and it's if these models are right, unless you stop fairly soon, fairly soon being on the order of between today and 2050. Um, you're going to overshoot and, and there'll be an apocalypse because of that. Now, most people who have looked at this know that if, if we continue with what would be called existing policy prescriptions, which, you know, is a hard phrase to totally understand, but it, 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 without the forced commitment to decarbonization, I think is a better way to put it, the world will probably get to three degrees C temperature, if you believe the models. So the question is, what's the cost benefit to the world of three degrees C and coping with that than trying to achieve uh, decarbonization? That, that should be the central point of the UN process. And it should be, uh, in my judgment, uh, uh, obvious to people that when people have tried to do in an intellectually honest way, 
this calculation of the social cost of carbon, which is really what is this net value of an emission versus its cost spread over time, discounted back with an, with an intellectually honest discount rate. You know, people get to numbers that are nowhere near consistent with decarbonization. Whether that number is $200 a ton or whether it's 50, to me, you know, the UN process should be about setting that. And the governments who are committed to that process should commit their national economies to internalize that. Now, that means all these different countries would be saying, here's our political uh, obligation to the UN process. We have to commit to this, you know, for lots of countries, maybe the United States, that's an impact on their sovereignty. They're not prepared to accept. But the way we have done it so far, you know, has had, you know, this pernicious effect of letting some countries get a free ride. And we know who those are, and, and that's deeply resented. Well, at the same time, certain countries, like a Canada, to do this, have to give up proportionally more of their economy to have it achieved, because we are actually a, an economy based unavoidably, whether our current governments want to admit it, on hydrocarbon export. So, you know, to me, if everybody is in uh, at the same number, there's a kind of uniformity, there's a kind of equity. And there's a kind of rationality. Now, these are uh, these aren't all my ideas. I, I freely acknowledge that that this has been, you know, very well articulated by uh, uh, Dr. Nordhaus at Yale. It's really what the blueprint for the way the world should have taken on to do this. Uh, and there's still time to change this, especially when we are going to go through the real uh, agonies of this upcoming winter in Western Europe. Good points. Um, in your section talking about the climate issue and where we're going and whatnot, you mentioned a little bit about the sort of re rhetoric out there with respect to climate alarmism. And mm -hmm. I think the, the use of language is really important. And, and you, you pull out some of these words that get used, like existential, mm -hmm. like code red, like climate mm -hmm. emergency and so on. How important is the use of that language in sort of fostering, and you to also talk about the delusion that seems to be motivating or at least informing a lot of the, the policy decisions with respect to renewables. How, the use of that language for the general public, is there a way to... Um, challenge the use of that rhetoric? Well, well, Timmy, I think the challenge comes by saying, I'm going to reinvent the UN process. That is to say, I am going to address this as it's never really been addressed as, as a question of economics, a question of a balance of probabilities, and a question of letting markets adapt to a set carbon price, as opposed to this allocation of emission reductions, because at some point in time, um, to totally eliminate this risk, we must, uh, we must stop using hydrocarbons, i.e. decarbonization. So 1.5 stabilization is only possible with decarbonization. So if you take that view, because if, we, if we're higher than that number, then that's, that's equal to apocalypse versus finding a means of the world of adapting to 3 degrees C. And that has always the rhetoric follows the the path of claiming that we uh, are not prepared to take the tail risk. And I don't want to sound like a probability uh, professor here, but clearly uh, there you know, there are scenarios where you know the world becomes utterly unstable. All of that, which is a way of sort of saying that the temperature really gets out of hand versus the way that it will more likely stabilize around a number that I, I believe the world can actually adapt to. And the labels we put on these different choices are, 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 are made, are done for political reasons, primarily, to, 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 to like try to mobilize political opinion, to mobilize the media without recognizing that these are, are complicated trade-offs that, that should be handled in my judgment, in a much more nuanced and subtle fashion. 
And if, you know, our history tells us anything is that human capacity for adaptation is very high, as long as it's given the right price signals to do that. And, you know, I'm one who is even willing to say the world should follow Canada and go to $170 a ton by 2030. That would be more rational than trying to assert decarbonization. So, you know, I live, uh, you know, a few months of the year in California. The idea that soon you will not be allowed to have basically any natural gas appliances in your home in a state that is already suffering from brownouts seems ludicrous to me. Uh, I hear that, you know, New Zealand is imposing on itself like no more plastic in any of its packaging, in any of its uh, um, single-use forms of plastic utilization. Well, you know, maybe they're prepared to accept that cost. I don't know. I would have preferred, of course, that the cost of plastic, to the extent that it's reflecting a carbon price, would have uh, New Zealanders themselves would have been left to the decision whether they want to make a substitution around avoiding a plastic bag. You know, it's really a mindset about let people react to a price signal rather than the oppressive mandates that you're going to have to use, the, the oppressive interventions to actually get to a world that's uh, going to resort to decarbonization, all on the theory that 1.5 degree temperature increase is all the planet can sustain. That's very well said. Um, with respect, if I'm, please let me know if I'm interpreting this wrong. Mm -hmm. But if you, if a government were to say, you know what, Dennis, you're right. I think we have to just do the carbon tax and we're going to use all of our political capital to bring the other developed countries online. But then that would also mean that all of the existing mandates of uh, emissions caps and all these things would go away. And yes. they wouldn't be mandating the electric vehicles and the fuel standard and all these other things. They would all go, right? Absolutely. And, and so, you know, what I would urge is in a more ideal world, if we had political leadership from North America that basically said, to, at, at least at the beginning to the rest of the G7, we have got to do this a different way. This is not working. And that uh, would basically then be expanded to the G20. And ultimately, that would transform the existing UN process. Because the people who are paying for the UN process, and I don't mean simply about the bureaucracy, of which is obviously a real cost, but I'm talking really about who has to bear the energy transition that is mandated by the current UN process. Those countries need to stand up and say, we need to do this differently. And so that political leadership has to, I think, start in North America. And I mean, as we both know, that's a very uncertain proposition as to whether the quality of leadership, even if the political opposition in both countries were to take power, whether they're capable of seeing these issues uh, in a way that recognizes there's a risk to be dealt with, but there's a better way of doing it than, than either uh, imposing mandates or, you know, imposing or diverting huge sums of money to technology descriptions that may be enormously expensive. So I've said a lot about my, my skepticism about CCS. I'd apply the same skepticism to, to hydrogen. I'd apply the same skepticism for other substitutes um, for certain applications of hydrocarbons, most notably uh you know, certain transportation applications and certainly petrochemicals. So again, this is having politicians, you know, show some deference to the realism of the market when it comes to how much any of this transition is actually affordable. Or desirable. Well, it, it, <laughs> and, you know, affordable and desirable usually go hand in hand. Um, and, and that should be obvious to people. Um, the, as long as you've actually imposed a correct carbon price, you actually, um, uh, you know, I think have, have, have made, given people the signal they need to respond to. Now, I should say, Tammy, I mean, this is a challenge to, to right-wing politicians who have typically resisted carbon pricing. 
and so I fully acknowledge, and I, I have in all the books that I've written, is that, you know, uh, right-wing entities, <laughs> elements in North America especially, you know, ha- have done a disservice by not at least accepting that carbon pricing in in theory – if not, there's lots of issues about its application, but in theory, it is the rational way of dealing with this um, with this risk. Much better than mandates and targets and contraction of the economy, well, way beyond what is actually, in my judgment, justified. Right. Now, I realize your book went to press before the United States passed its new Green Deal light in the form of the yes. Infrastructure Act, but... Um, what do you make of that? In, in your book, you sort of mentioned, well, the U.S. isn't going along this route, so it makes it extremely difficult for Canada to do anything properly if the Americans aren't doing it, too. So now that they have their Infrastructure Act, do, you know, um, does the passing of this act affect how Canada is going to do things and your policy prescription? Well, so I think people need to recognize what what they accomplished there and what they didn't accomplish. And, and, a, and a good bellwether looking at that is how muted the uh, reaction of the American environmental movement was to, to this, the, the, this piece of legislation, you know, had to fit into the unique uh, congressional requirements of reconciliation so that they could actually pass it in the U S Senate at 50, 50 and let Kamala Harris break the tie. So it took the form largely of fiscal uh, expenditures, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, tax subsidies, um, grants, etc., to large numbers of low emission technologies spanning, you know, from um, not just CCS, but, you know, electric vehicles, hydrogen across the board. So this was, you know, a huge uh, and some people said what was really done here was more about industrial policy than it was climate change, because what it didn't do is there's no restrictions on how Americans can use energy in this bill. There, There are no like emission reduction targets in this bill, and there's certainly no carbon pricing in this bill. This is what they could get done with Joe Manchin. Uh, To me, uh, you know, this is something that will allow the United States to accelerate the development of some low emission technologies. And if those are competitive uh, with hydrocarbons, well, we all uh, we all should support that if that could ever be true. So none of that stops the issue as to how do you get emissions down uh, to conform to what the UN process is describing. This bill didn't do that. Presumably, if there was uh uh, more fulsome control of the U.S. government by those parts of the Democratic Party that really wanted uh, energy transition uh, at the at the um, in the timing that Joe Biden has talked about. Well, we'd we'd see much more draconian forms of legislation. So, so my own judgment is that the Inflation Reduction Act in no way takes off the table the questions of. Are these targets still going to be adhered to? And if they are, are are the political costs of achieving them going to be um, acceptable? And is there a better way to do this through through carbon pricing? Uh, So, again, I think we need to understand that the Inflation Reduction Act uh, was perhaps as much industrial policy as it was climate, because that's all they could pass. And again, I would invite people to take a look at how the environmental movement has looked at it. Uh, I think they've found it, you know, constructive, but but hardly, uh, but but hardly uh, uh, sufficient condition to to get to the ambitions that they would uh, want, which are which were obviously much more uh, radical interventions in in the in how energy would be used, and and in fact, you see, you know, states like California trying to push the envelope of those interventions. Typically, in the term forms of, of appliances and natural gas installations, um, even though they can't actually keep the electricity going in in, in California without keeping, uh, you know, natural gas facilities up. 
Well, it was it was interesting to see California um, walk back its shutting of the of the nuclear power plant. Diablo Canyon. Yes. Diablo Canyon. <laughs> and it was funny because I was speaking with Francis Menton and he said he'd written this piece where he had said, just keep pushing, push, push full steam ahead. And because the sooner you hit the wall, the sooner we can all see that it doesn't work. <laughs> and, well, there's, uh, that, there's, that, that's great advice. Because, but, but, but what a, what a, what a stupid way to run a country or to run a, to, to run things, to, to, yeah. to basically have catastrophe be the only way you learn your lessons. Well, even the EU, I mean, this is the Russian situation is a bit of a catastrophe. And I don't think they learned their lesson to the extent that they should. And Canada certainly isn't doesn't seem to be learning a lesson from it either. You know, when Germany comes to Canada asking for increased oil and gas and we offer hydrogen at some point in the future. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so it, it is utterly pathetic. Uh, and because, but at the heart of it is this, uh, and uh, I'm speaking here as a Canadian. The, the current Canadian government knows that if it if it, if it had said to Mr. Stoles that we are going to commit ourselves to rapid expansion of our LNG capacity, even if it takes the next uh, three to four years to fully uh, to fully have it manifest itself in the international LNG market. That is to say, we would reduce the exist some of the existing regulatory constraints on the completion of Coastal Gas Link and the Shell LNG Canada facility, which would be Canada's first world-class LNG facility. Canada would commit itself to a doubling of that project within the next three years and the development of a parallel uh, pipeline to take Western Canadian gas to Prince Rupert as opposed to Kitimat and have another world scale. So, you know, Canada could do its part that way. The mere yeah. fact that Canada was doing that as a commitment. And I mean, that, that is the logical way of Canada supporting the world LNG market is by using its West coast, sending that LNG to Asia, letting by displacement, basically more LNG become available for Western Europe. Right. Uh, rather than trying to suggest that, you know, uh, uh, at some point in time, the manufacture of hydrogen electrolytic, uh, electrolytically in Quebec and somehow transported to Germany is any part of their energy solution. Because we know at the core of it, for Trudeau to have actually done something constructive for Germany would have meant that our whole climate ambitions would be out the window. He'd have had to look at Gibo in the eye and say, well, I guess sometimes in life, some things are more important than climate targets. <laughs> They're not ready to go there yet. It's that it's really that simple. And it is in fact the same dilemma that parts of the EU process faces. Because for them to become more energy secure, which really means displacing Russian hydrocarbons, they're gonna have to accept that we couldn't really substitute away from those hydrocarbons in the short run. I mean maybe we never can. So we have to find it from other parts of the world that we can actually trust. And of course, logically, that would take you towards North America, where, again, if the political leadership in both Canada and the United States accepted that role for these countries, that we actually can provide more energy security and a more ordered world, this should have been a win-win, especially for a country like Canada, who's, you know, doesn't have the same robustness and diversity as the American economy has. But nonetheless, uh, it all comes back to you can't be committed to say, yes, I'm going to be a growing hydrocarbon or even a growing oil sands producer and sustain these existing targets. It's not possible. Well, right. And which is why it was perplexing. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, what is the, the ultimate motivation for the United States to be saying, you know, sorry, we're, we can't increase production, but we're going to ask OPEC to do it, or the EU has the capacity to increase the production of their oil and gas offshore, um, and Holland has said they won't. Norway so, so says they're kind yeah. of at their limit, and the UK is the only one who's actually said, yes, we're going to try and increase our supply. Well, let me just speak about North America, because I think it's, uh, I feel more confident speaking about you know the, the conversations that 
undoubtedly went on around Biden on this topic. And frankly, it wouldn't have been that much different from what was said with Trudeau. North America itself does not face a physical energy crisis this winter. Okay, right. It has yeah. abundant oil and natural gas. The price may be higher than they want. That's, you know, uh, disturbing to Biden going into the election. But but they don't have any physical shortages that actually would force any North American to face like rationing. But what they know is that if they basically say, OK, we are going to like give the go ahead for investments to increase hydrocarbon production in North America, they're going to have to be committed for the long term. So right. you lock in a commitment that locks you in over time towards more hydrocarbon production, which means more emissions from that would be attributed to these countries might not make any change in the world's emissions, but it will to how the, again, the UN convention attributes those emissions to Canada and the United States. So, whereas if you just bridge over this little problem that we've had with Putin and we just let, you know, other distasteful countries, but people who can maybe in the short run produce more oil, they kind of bridge us over this. This is an enormously cynical posture where we'll rely on countries to just get us through this so we don't have to basically revisit, you know, our extreme climate positions. Right. So that they're really trying to keep, you know, the integrity of their climate ambitions intact, even though they know they're in a global energy security crisis where North America actually does have capacity to affect these balances over time, affect how Europe would become more insulated. If you if you can't imagine, you know, Russia being led by regimes that, you know, would actually conform to the uh, a world order where you could trust them again, uh, this is the transformation that you would need to have happen. So I think it's very explainable just in terms of, well, you know, in a set of bad options, it's better to grovel to Venezuela and regimes that we don't really like their human rights efforts because they can, in the short run, do something. So we don't have to actually lock in over time higher amounts of hydrocarbon production in North America. Well, and again, this is a point that, you know, the political opposition in both countries should be making right. uh, in terms of just how cynical this energy security posture has been. Well, with respect to energy security, if if Canada continues on the decarbonization pathway, mm-hmm. and there's there's many who advise the government who are part of the deep decarbonization project and whatnot, um, then it actually jeopardizes the long-term energy security of Canada. Because if we're no longer allowed to produce the hydrocarbons that keep our economy going and allows for us to have a certain standard of living, then <laughs> you know the the implications of that are, are are quite extraordinary, and I think it's it's unfortunate that it takes an attack like what Russia's done to Ukraine to bring energy security back into the conversation. Because if anything, that ought to be having people um, express second thoughts about this course that we're on, this trajectory, and that you know. It, you can't well, just have your cake yeah. and eat it too, I guess. Right. So, so Tammy, you know, again, this is a point I always make because it's actually, you know, grounded in just a unique reality about Canada's uh, electrical generation um, configuration. You know, in Canada, you have the province of Quebec that, from an electricity point of view, you know, is entirely green based on. It's it's endowment of hydropower in Ontario. It is substantially green in electric generation because of its big commitment to nuclear. And then you get to B.C. and Manitoba. And those are two other provinces that are substantially green in how it makes electricity. Frankly, it's really only Alberta and Saskatchewan that continue to generate electricity through hydrocarbons in Canada. This makes us very different than the United States, where, you know, a much higher percentage of their power is made from still hydrocarbon sources. I'm not talking about natural gas speaking. I'm talking about baseload coal. I make that point because, you know, those, so, so what it means really is we produce hydrocarbons in Canada not to make electricity, 
substantially at a national level, we make so much more than we can use for our own, you know, domestic, uh, you know, gasoline and jet fuel uses that we're an exporter. So you're, you're basically going to, if you're going to decarbonize is rip that major export contributor to your economy. You're just going to end it. Right. And begging the question, how are you going to replace it? Like how, what is Alberta going to do uh, when there's no oil and gas activity in this province? Uh, you know, what, what becomes its future based on presumably at that point, uh, whatever electricity would be generated in Alberta would be either from intermittent renewables and perhaps some baseload nuclear. I mean, th these are not questions that are, you know, easy to confront, but, but they're implicit in the glib discussion that we're going to get to net zero by 2050 uh, because, you know, what is Alberta going or what is Canada going to do when it doesn't have, you know, the contribution to its national economy from hydrocarbon export? And, and not just you know, hydrocarbon, and the, but also the agriculture, right? Because if well, you absolutely. take away, you know, the, they want to do the nitrogen emissions and they want to do absolutely. the reduced emissions from fertilizer. And then if you right. stop, which, which, which will inevitably right. mean less agricultural output. Uh, it would Less mean changing that e that economy, and I mean again, it, it it becomes you know very much a very regionally divisive way of looking at all this, right? Uh, uh, because certain of these provinces, you know, have just because of their natural endowment or how they evolved, uh, you know, are not they don't make electricity in a way that they have a lot of adjusting to do. Fine, the question is the contribution of hydrocarbon production to the national economy, or even as you just have pointed out, how hydrocarbons are indispensable uh, in how they support, you know, agricultural output in this country, which again is, you know, highly regionally uh, distinct in terms of what we're talking about when we're discussing uh, those parts of the country that its agricultural sectors are largely export oriented. Yeah. Especially in the prairies. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I think that's, <laughs> I've taken up so much of your time. We're over an hour and um, I wanted and, to. Tammy, if I could only close you. with one, yeah. one point. Sure. And again, this is from a Canadian perspective. Like what I really do hope from this book is that the quality of the political debate around these issues is really uh, somehow improved because you know um the this should be a vigorous debate within this country and i know it has not been adequately debated because the existing federal government has never had to account for the cost that would be imposed on this country uh by actually trying to pursue decarbonization and so my my, my real hope in all of this and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you today is um uh, this is the debate Canadians uh, need to have. Absolutely. And I, I, I'm hopeful that your book will get circulated to the general public, you know, not just those of us who are interested in these, well, in these they issues. Can buy it, they can buy it in uh, starting October 26th on, in, in the usual formats, both uh, um, uh, in Canadian bookstores and also uh, online. Excellent. And I'll put a link to your books in uh, the description. So if anybody wants to check out the previous books as a lead up to this new one, please click on it and, and take a look. So thank, thank you, you so much, Dennis, for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate your insights. I mean, it was some amazing work in this book. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. Bye-bye. Well done. Thank you so well, that much. Was, that was really Again. good, uh, Timmy. Thank you. Uh, please stay in touch. Um, um, keep me informed about just how the UK tries to get through this winter. I know. Um, we've got two generators at our house. Just, you know, being from the prairies, we're kind of always a little I mean, prepared, the, 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 you know? the one thing the UK actually has going for it is, you know, if it wanted to, it, it could, I think, relatively quickly restore its natural gas infrastructure and, and really uh, insulate itself uh, as it should have done over time. Uh, but that's a big choice, I guess, for 
people in the UK to make about enabling well, more more natural gas production. True. Um, they they had reversed a decision back in March, I think it was, of a shell project offshore. Mm -hmm. And so they're allowing it to go forward. And in August, Greenpeace um, filed a lawsuit to stop mm -hmm. it. So, you know, the, I'm always a little bit skeptical about the ability of the UK government to actually follow through because there's so much resistance. Not well, just, I think this is where you know, this is where this this is the silver lining of how bad it gets this winter. <laughs> is that at some point that the, that like the the destructiveness of entities like Greenpeace become impossible to tolerate? Yeah, I mean, Extinction Rebellion is crazy here. They've been shutting down London for you know the past several days, and it's been ongoing since. Um, what was it? Climate Week at the UN or whatever, where they they're gluing themselves to the the roads and Parliament and. The, there's a new offshoot where they're dumping milk all over everywhere and stuff, which is, you know, it, but it's well, making people angry. Yeah. So again, th th this is just a question of enforcement, right? Like yeah. when you, when you, uh, but, but again, it, it, usually we sit in our conversation when, when you have UN leadership using the rhetoric they use, <laughs> it, it gives a kind of credibility yeah. to this, right? Right. The inflammatory and um, very emotional, very highly emotional language, you know, like climate emergency and all that. And that's well, not for, helpful. For, for another day. And there's probably better experts than me on this. You know, like when there was the Florida hurricane two weeks ago, oh, yeah, there was a lot of debate about like how much climate change had made it worse. Right. So this whole area of attribution science gets to be very murky uh, because yeah. it's at the core of a, a lot of how. You know, certain governments, uh, you know, want to invoke um, these natural disasters as a validation of their climate policies. Yeah. So, so again, it's it's um, it would be so much better if we were discussing. Well, are we all doing two hundred dollars a ton and getting on with life versus um, you know these this kind of extremism? But listen, thank you yeah. so much for giving thank me you. the chance to talk to you and stay in touch. 